Hello and welcome to the fifth episode in this podcast series from the Linklaters Employee Incentives Team on the lessons PLCs can take from the financial services sector in managing risk and setting board pay. I'm Ben McCarthy, an associate in the team. And I'm Kaylee Jones, also an associate in the team. In the previous episode, we talked about the use of discretion in risk adjustments and the potential pitfalls. In this podcast, we'll cover the use of malice and clawback. So Ben, let's look at malice and clawback. A quick reminder of the basics. Malice is the power to adjust outcome at the point of vesting. Clawback is the power to, well, claw back pay after it's been paid. That is demand and get repayment from your participants. Thanks, Kaylee. In fact, some of the points here are very similar to those we looked at in our previous podcast on the ability to exercise discretion over formulaic pay outcomes. After all, the decision to apply malice or clawback is very similar to the decision to reduce vesting levels from those the performance condition has produced. The difference is that malice and clawback decisions are taken at a later stage, and with clawback there are implementation issues. The starting point when we're thinking about these things is the scope of malice and clawback. Malice and clawback powers have been defined much more widely in the FS sector than so far in the PLC sector. In the FS sector, firms are required to be able to apply malice where there is reasonable evidence of employee misbehaviour or material error or the firm or the relevant business unit or fund suffers a material downturn in its financial performance or a material failure of risk management. Until not that long ago, the non-FS PLC practice has focused on malice triggers of a misstatement or, or restatement of results error in calculation and misconduct. And there is now clearly a pressure on PLCs to consider whether the existing malice and clawback triggers are appropriate. And as we've seen, the government is proposing having quite specific triggers in the corporate governance code, but that may not happen for a while. Also, we don't know what changes may occur to what are at the moment only proposals. Exactly. But thinking again about the uh, the triggers for malice and clawback, how widely should they be drafted? So there's no single right answer to that. But FS firms, and in particular the larger institutions and banks, tend to define their malice power as a very broad discretion that can be exercised, exercised by the REMCO. So they're not contingent on any particular event occurring. To give the participants some level of reassurance, that might be backed up with some non-exhaustive examples of situations in which malice may be applied. But in a contentious situation, even that list of examples could narrow the discretion. Narrowing that slightly, malice powers may also be framed by reference to a broad principle. In the FS sector, that may reflect the regulatory language. That allows malice to apply where the committee determines that vesting would not be sustainable according to the financial situation of the firm or justified based on the performance, that is financial and non-financial performance of the firm, business unit or individual. And those types of formulation we see in the financial sector are a lot wider than most PLCs would currently operate. But the direction of travel means that PLC should be considering whether a widening of the malice power may, may be desirable now, even up to an unlimited discretion. If you are trying to cater for the unexpected, it may be better not to try to predict when you will need the power. 
clawback is slightly different because of the additional complexities with enforceability. Market practice in the FX sector is therefore to define more precisely when clawback could be applied. Even so, there's a much wider formulation than is current in non-FS market practice for clawback. At the very least, remuneration committees should be considering this, and it seems prudent to draw on FS experiences as part of that. A key lesson from the FS sector is what requires focus. Initially in the FS sector, this was on the scope and drafting of the contractual powers, which we have just talked about. But over time, as malice clauses bed in, and importantly, as they actually start to be used in practice, the real focus needs to move beyond the rules onto the process leading to that decision. So Kaylee, FS firms have had to look in detail at how a decision to apply malice or clawback proceeds from start to finish. For PLCs where malice clauses are only relevant at the very top level, the situation may be slightly simpler. But in fact, Malice clauses are now increasingly included in LTIP rules and bonus plans for much wider populations, so the decision process lessons may become more relevant. So what is the process then? So the malice and clawback provisions are set out in bonus documents and LTIP documents. Behind that, a bank is likely to be operating a policy document setting out how the process for considering malice adjustment or clawback would be approached. A key aspect of that is working out the systems in place for ensuring that any risk issues that could potentially lead to a malice adjustment are identified and then escalated. So some key things you need to consider. Who needs to be involved internally in that process? What triggers the process for considering a malice adjustment? Leaving that entirely as a discretionary matter can be problematic. In particular, it could lead to inconsistency over time between different events or different participants. Another critical question is how large a malice adjustment to apply and to which awards. This is relevant when and if you come to apply malice or clawback. Now, um, looking at each of these in turn, so one, quantum, except for misconduct cases, the decision may not be straightforward at all. And where a reputational issue hits the company, for example, how do you go about measuring the impact of that on the level of adjustment to be applied? And then how do you compare the impact of, say, a managerial risk failing around corporate culture to a separate reputational impact issue? Which is worse? So these questions become very important in light of the employment law considerations. Number two, which awards might you adjust? And as we know, and despite pleas to the contrary from some investor groups, LTIP plans and executive shareholdings are continuing to become more complex. At any particular time, an executive may be working towards the next LTIP grant date, have unvested LTIPs, hold vested shares subject to a holding period, and hold vested shares. Some of those may be held as part of shareholding targets and now also continuing post-cessation of employment. Exactly. So what's really important is getting clarity as to which shares would be in scope for Malice as compared to Clawback. This is important because as we've seen, the scope of a malice power tends to be wider or potentially a lot wider than the clawback power. That kind of makes sense, given that when you're clawing back, you're actually taking something away that somebody was already entitled to. So LTIP awards that have not yet been granted should ideally be fully at risk. Unvested LTIP awards are clearly within the scope of malice. Vested shares delivered and held under a holding period 
on the other hand, may be easier to enforce against, but action to recover those shares may need to be addressed under a clawback power rather than malice. The situation may be complicated further where plans apply a holding period by delaying the vesting date of an option or conditional award. This all shows how important it is to ensure that the documents, such as the plan rules and the terms of any nominee account for holding period shares, give the company the power to apply malice and clawback. So Kaylee, against that backdrop, you then may have a choice of which award or awards to adjust. And this is also not always a straightforward question. And as we mentioned earlier, there are likely to be four potential candidates for reduction or repayment. The in-year variable pay, reducing the bonus for the current year, reducing unvested awards, recovering vested awards held during a holding period, or finally, trying to claw back previously delivered awards. That hard claw back is last on the list there for obvious reasons. But what about the others? A common approach might be to start with the awards that relate to the year in which the relevant incident occurred if there is a single year, but that's also not clear cut. If an incident happened two and a bit years ago, say, the award that vested in that year might not be clear of its holding period and have been released. So do you apply malice to the award that was granted in that year? The real downside of that is that you are reducing awards pre-performance assessment, so the incentive effect diminishes and you're also reducing awards before you know what their real value might otherwise have been to the employee. Of course, these are all questions that we can resolve and different firms may take a different approach in the context of the specific circumstances. But the lesson is that the, the recording of these malice provisions in your LTIP rules and remuneration policy is far from the end of the process. So there's obviously a lot to think about in drafting and operating malice and clawback, and we're always happy to help in sorting out your documents and processes. So please do get in touch if you'd like to discuss any of the topics we've spoken about today in greater detail. And to continue listening, click on the next and last episode in the podcast series, where we'll look at the freezing of awards vesting. Thank you.